From the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for tuning in. When you join Mayo Clinic's Dermatology Department, you're joining a team that's transforming dermatologic care for the better. Here, you're doing the work that not only makes our patients' lives better, you're doing the work that changes your life. Visit jobs.mayoclinic.org slash dermatology to learn more. Welcome everyone to another episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Stephen Chen, and I am so, so thrilled to be joined by Dr. Emily Baumrin from University of Pennsylvania. I would love to share a little bit more about why I know Dr. Baumrin, why I'm so excited to have her here today. And so for all of our listeners, as a reminder, this is actually based on the JADCME article that just came out in the first issue of 2024 in the January edition, which really summarizes all the information and future directions of our knowledge of graft-versus-host disease. First, before we get started, just a quick welcome. Welcome, Dr. Baumrin. Thanks for joining us. Hi, it's so great to be here. If it's okay, I'm going to maybe embarrass you. Actually, I'm going to embarrass myself for a second. Mm-hmm. So the reason why I know Emily is because we go way back. She was actually my continuity resident when she was a resident with us up at Harvard. And we unfortunately lost her to Penn, but it's certainly to their benefit to have recruited Emily down to Philadelphia. But the thing that I always love to share is that for some reason, all of my continuity residents, when they graduate, end up specializing in graft versus host disease, which I think says more about what they saw when they were with me, meaning they knew that it could be done better. So I'm really excited because Emily's really paved the way for new energy, new ideas, new thoughts. Her work in graft versus host disease is really exciting. So can't think of a better person to be speaking to all of our listeners today about this disease entity. All right, let's get things started. So, Emily, do you mind just reminding all of our listeners, myself, let's just get everyone on the same page. Who gets GVHD? When should we expect it? And ultimately, why should we care? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll give you a little bit of the more complex answer, and then we'll focus it down to a more simple answer. So graft-versus-host disease predominantly occurs in patients who get allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplants, which means stem cell transplants where the stem cells are given by a donor. This is the most common scenario and really the focus of this JAD-CME and what we'll talk about today. However, you can also see skin GVHD in autologous stem cell transplant recipients. Those are people who get their stem cells from themselves or even after blood product transfusion or solid organ transplantation, but that is much less common and you always wanna be thinking of a broad differential diagnosis in those patients. And then when can we expect it to occur? So GVHD is really broken into acute GVHD or chronic GVHD. Again, chronic GVHD is really the focus of this JAD-CME, but our understanding of when to expect acute and chronic has kind of shifted in the last maybe 10 to 20 years. So originally, acute GVHD was thought to present before 90 days after transplant. And so any kind of skin rash thought to be GVHD before 90 days was termed acute GVHD. After 90 days would be chronic GVHD. However, now that kind of diagnostic criteria has really shifted. And so we diagnose acute GVHD and chronic GVHD based on clinical presentation. And for dermatologists, that means based on the morphology of the skin lesions. So acute GVHD is diagnosed really as a morbiliform eruption, typically occurring with lower gastrointestinal symptoms like diarrhea and liver abnormalities such as hyperbilirubinemia 
Whereas chronic GVHD is so fascinating because it can present with so many morphologies that we can go over in more detail, but typically not your morbilliform eruption and then can involve various organs, including the upper gastrointestinal tract, the lungs, the lower gastrointestinal tract, the mouth, eyes, genitalia, and so many others. But can I ask a quick question there? So the way that I've always thought about GVH and differentiating morphology for the purposes of diagnosing acute and chronic, in my mind, it's always been acute is morbilliform. We can get into details of that. I know that's not the focus of the JET CME, so I'm not going to go there. But in my mind, very simply, acute is morbilliform eruption in the most kind of severe stage, a TEN-like eruption. That's all happening more so in the hospital. Would it be safe to say that everything else almost always is chronic? Or do you think that's too simplistic? Like what other categories should we be thinking about to make sure we're not misdiagnosing someone? Yeah, the one nuanced addition, you're thinking is exactly right, is just what we call overlap chronic GVHD. And that's when someone has a morbilliform eruption, but they already have a diagnosis of chronic GVHD. And that's because maybe they have ocular GVHD or oral GVHD or pulmonary fibrosis consistent with lung chronic GVHD. So if they have a diagnosis of chronic GVHD already, and they get a morbilliform eruption, they're still in the chronic GVHD category. Think about it like once you have a, a diagnosis of chronic GVHD, you're always chronic GVHD, regardless of your skin morphology. But by and large, you're correct that the morbilliform eruption and even progressing to a TN-like eruption is most consistent with acute GVHD. Great. Awesome. Thank you. And obviously, there's some like... As a reminder for our listeners, the way I was always taught about it is, you know, morbilliform eruptions in a hospitalized patient, there's a lot that you can think about, but certainly GVHD tends to be more acrally predominant and then moves centrally, tends to be more follicular. At least those are the things that I was taught. Please, Emily, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to be teaching our listeners something incorrect. No, that's right. But there's always a differential diagnosis there. The nice thing or the cool thing about chronic GVHD diagnosis, and I'll just go there, is... You can make the diagnosis without, you know, based on clinical morphology alone in some cases, which is really great. So there are in 2014, the National Institutes of Health uh, made kind of a consensus committee and together they developed diagnostic grading and response criteria for chronic GVHD. Now they do this for every organ that I mentioned, the gastrointestinal tract, the lungs, the mouth, the eyes but they did that for the skin as well. And that is really our gold standard that we use for diagnostic criteria, grading criteria, and response criteria for clinical trials. But I also find that it's extremely useful to use in clinical practice as well. So for the diagnostic criteria, there are certain morphologies that are diagnostic of chronic GVHD and don't require any additional testing, including a skin biopsy. These clinical features that are diagnostic include a poikiloderma-like eruption, usually on the upper chest or the back, lichen planus-like eruptions, typically distinguished from idiopathic lichen planus because they tend to be much more widespread and very focused over uh, the chest and back area. And then morphia-like lesions and lichen sclerosis-like lesions, as well as deep sclerosis, which usually presents as kind of a pseudocellulitic appearance. And then fasciitis, like your typical groove sign, which is most obvious in the proximal arms, medial arms, and proximal medial thighs. 
So those morphologies in the correct host, meaning an allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplant recipient, are actually diagnostic of chronic GVHD without any further testing. Because the chronic GVHD of the skin is so polymorphous, there are also many other morphologies that can be seen with chronic GVHD of the skin, but are not diagnostic in themselves, and then they need additional workup. That additional workup could be a skin biopsy, or it could be an additional workup of another organ confirming chronic GVHD. And some of those morphologies are like really all of dermatology is what I like to say. So you can get eczema-like lesions, psoriasis-like lesions, hypopigmentation, hyperpigmentation, depigmentation, as well as involvement of the annexal structures like the hair and the nails. So that's amazing. Where are we now, though, in terms of our ability to diagnose GVHD on pathology? You know, there's been multiple studies that have come out looking at stains, like potential immunohistochemical stains that might be a little bit helpful. But from my recollection and my own reading, it's been a while, but from my own recollection and reading, it seems like those studies are either flawed or the results have not been that impressive. Anything new in that front? No, it's really an opportunity for future research. And I've even tried with my group here to look at all of the chronic GVHD pathology specimens to try to see if they're specific to GVHD, specific to their kind of idiopathic counterpart, like lichen sclerosis or lichen planus, or a combination of both. Most of the pathology studies of what you're talking about with stains or eosinophil count is in acute GVHD and much less in chronic GVHD. And so there is really an area of opportunity to kind of describe the features of chronic GVHD pathologically. And then also my suspicion is they're not going to be particularly specific. And so trying to come up with further diagnostic tests, whether it's immunohistochemistry or something fancier like cytokine profiling. And to put this patient back in the center of all of this, why is this such a big deal? Like, why do we care so much about figuring out what type of GVHD they have to treat it? If you can remind our listeners why we're even having this conversation, right? Because this is ultimately about the patient and about making sure that we take the best care of them as we can. Yeah, that's such a good question. And thank you for bringing me back to that. So you can think about kind of like the short-term consequences and the long-term consequences. And so long-term consequences first, skin GVHD, in particular with the skin, has been associated with increased mortality. So some groups before us and then our group also evaluated skin chronic GVHD severity and long-term outcomes, including non-relapse mortality, adjusting for other mortality factors, and we found a significant association, which has been replicated. So that's thinking about the long-term outcome. We know patients who have worse skin GVHD die more frequently. But then what about the short-term outcome? And that really has to do with health-related quality of life. And there's been a ton of literature and then just obviously working with these patients and demonstrating how severe skin GVHD can impact quality of life both from a symptom standpoint, tightness, immobility, when you think about sclerosis, but itch and flaking and dispigmentation, that can be lifelong. So a, a huge impact on quality of life. And this is a disease when caught early that we can really kind of preempt a treatment and try to prevent these impairments that can cause impaired quality of life. 
Right. Yeah. So in thinking about that, what is our current understanding of pathophysiology for this disease? Because I think some of it, it, this was laid out beautifully in your CME articles, but what's new or what's the update in our understanding of what's happening under the skin to cause the morphology that we're seeing? Yeah, that's a a great question. And I will say that the broad strokes have been better defined in the last maybe 10 to 20 years, but there's still so much that we don't understand about the pathophysiology of chronic GVHD in particular, because it's felt to be both an alloimmune, that means reacting against, you know, the foreign donor and autoimmune type syndrome together. So to walk you through kind of the three broad steps that have been defined mostly through mouse models, but also with some kind of human and large animal studies as well, is the first phase of chronic GVHD is thought to be tissue injury and innate inflammation. So these patients have many reasons to have tissue injury. Conditioning regimens can cause tissue injury, post-transplant infections, and also acute GVHD itself before chronic GVHD all can cause tissue injury. This tissue injury releases lots of kind of foreign particles that aren't supposed to be circulating and activates early innate inflammation. The key process there is when we have activation of the innate immune system, you get activation of antigen presentation cells. And that leads you to really the second phase of the chronic GVHD pathophysiology. And that's the generation of dysregulated B cells and T cells. And so once you have antigen presentation, you get activation of your B and T cells. And the activation is beyond just activation of normal BNT cells. We see activation of kind of autoimmune BNT cells or dysregulated BNT cells. And we think that this happens from loss of central tolerance through the thymus, injuries to the thymus, from again, all of these kind of tissue damaging processes that I mentioned, and also loss of peripheral tolerance. Those are things like T regulatory cells that we hear about so much in dermatology. And so that's kind of the middle phase. And then the last phase is activation of fibrosis. And so this dysregulated BNT cell immunity can trigger macrophages, deposition of collagen, fibrosis. And that's the terminal phase that we see. And we predominantly see that in the lungs manifesting as bronchiolitis obliterans and in the skin as sclerotic GVHD, less so in other organs. And that remains to be kind of poorly understood. Great. Thank you for the update. So based on what you laid out in the article and what we just chatted about, there's a lot of potential targets for therapy because we talked about how devastating this can be for a patient. And so obviously our job is to try to treat it. So based on our understanding, what are some of the treatments that you think about or have been tried for graft-versus-host disease? Yeah. And I'll just basically give you the broad overstrokes of those three phases. So The first phase, the activation of innate immunity, has not been a target of any kind of therapies to date, either that exist or are in development. And it might be just because that innate immune system activation is so general that it doesn't feel targetable, but it's not really in the pipeline. The second phase, the dysregulated immune B cells and T cells, is really where the treatments have focused their efforts. And I'll go over some specific ones that we are using very frequently. And then the last opportunity is in the development of fibrosis. And there have been some trials in this space. For example, perfenidone has been tried, which we use for fibrosis of the lungs for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Some TGF beta inhibitors have also been trialed, but nothing has really made it into that kind of like phase three clinical trial yet. 
So I think what we have to work with is mostly in the B and T cell space of the phase two. So that brings us to kind of the space of GBHG treatments. So to review, and we'll talk a little bit about kind of like an algorithm to go through, but if a patient requires systemic therapy, okay, beyond our skin-directed therapies, the first-line treatment is systemic corticosteroids. Often we forget this because there's all these fancy other treatments that are coming out, but really that is first-line. However, less than 20% of people have a sustained durable response with systemic corticosteroids. So like around 80% of people are going to need something additional. So that brings us to our therapies for what we term steroid refractory chronic GVHG. And while it sounds really bad, it's actually the majority of patients, okay, that have this term steroid refractory chronic GVHG. And in terms of therapy for steroid refractory chronic GVHG, we have three FDA approved therapies. And they're not therapies that we use super commonly in dermatology, but they're used really frequently for steroid refractory chronic GBHD. And as a dermatologist who cares for a ton of these patients, especially patients with sclerosis, I am quite familiar with kind of when to use these, how to use these, the toxicities to manage. And those are kind of outlined in the JAD-CME for those who are interested. So the first with probably the most overlap with dermatologic conditions is a medication called ruxolitinib, which is a JAK1-2 inhibitor. I think the reason that we haven't used it too much in dermatology is really a historical one because it was used for a condition called myelofibrosis for a long time. And so it was known to the oncology space. And so they just studied it in chronic GVHD, but it has a very similar mechanism of action of tofacitinib and other medications that we use more frequently. And that is, as you guys know, a JAK stat inhibitor and can target both T cells and B cells. Then the second medication that we use quite frequently is a medication called Belumosidil. And Belumosidil's mechanism of action is that it's a ROC2 inhibitor. I had never heard of this. It's actually the only medication approved like ever, that's a ROC2 inhibitor. So it's a novel mechanism of action. However, the ROC2 is actually part of that JAK stat pathway. It's a little bit more downstream. And so it has very similar mechanism of action to ruxolitinib or other JAK inhibitors, but it's more targeted. And so it has less side effects like cytopenias and some of the other side effects that we see with JAK inhibitors, but also has kind of like B and T cell inhibition. And then the last one that's FDA approved is ibrutinib, which is predominantly a B cell inhibiting agent. And I will say that although it's FDA approved, it's used a little bit less commonly because of its side effect profile. So many patients can't tolerate ibrutinib, whereas the JAK inhibitors and the ROC2 inhibitors are better tolerated. Yeah. And I think that's as someone who also sees quite a bit of GVHD, I feel like you naturally get used to these medications because you're seeing a lot of other patients on them. But I will fully admit those aren't medications that we as dermatologists typically will prescribe. So in terms of thinking, but before we get to the ones that we typically prescribe, extracorporeal photophoresis, where does that fit in? You know, we always joked in residency that it's where blood comes out, magic happens in a box and you put the blood back in. I know, obviously, it's more complicated than that. But where does it fit into your algorithm for treatment for these patients? Yes. So I think the reason I didn't mention it up front is because it's not FDA approved. So I started to just start with things that are FDA approved, should be approved by your insurance, easy to get and easily available. Unfortunately, there's just not a lot of centers offering extracorporeal photophoresis, which limits its ability to be studied. And it's also not like a new fancy therapy. So there's not a lot of money to study it. 
That being said, the data that we do have from prospective studies that are observational for the most part are that it has a pretty good response rate. This very variable, maybe between like 30 and 70%, depending on what studies you look at. But where does it fit in? We often use it as an adjunctive therapy. And the reasoning is because it is non-immunosuppressive. And so it's a great therapy to add on to prednisone and ruxolitinib or belumosidil, but doesn't give the patient more risk of immunosuppression. The other reason we use it as an adjunctive therapy is it's a huge time commitment and financially it can be quite expensive. And so typically it's added on when patients are refractory to some of our easier to tolerate and take and fit into people's lifestyle medications. The best evidence that we have for extracorporeal photophoresis is that it allows people to taper prednisone more quickly. And so often we will try to do it when patients are on multiple therapies, but still prednisone dependent. Right. And thinking about all the other options, you say B and T cells, and we as dermatologists are so good at suppressing B and T cell function normally. We have so many medications that we can reach for. What about all those other ones like mycophenolate and methotrexate and rituximab? Where do those fit in? Yeah. So before 2017, before we had these three FDA approved therapies that I just talked about, those were our go-to. So Cellcept used all the time for sclerotic GVHD and liver GVHD. Um, There's a lot of good efficacy for that. Methotrexate and Plaquenil for inflammatory arthritis related to GVHD. People use even alemtuzumab or, you know, some of these really, really immunosuppressive agents. Rituximab was used. So all of these B and T cell agents that we use in dermatology have been used. But now that we have kind of FDA-approved therapies with randomized control trials, better evidence, that's why we've made that shift. But we often reach for those back for those agents when patients are progressing through these first lines of therapy. And taking treatment into the future. One of the things that you mentioned in the JAD CME that I, I found very interesting is the activation of the TH17 pathway and the TH1 pathway that's been seen in chronic GVHD. So naturally, I think a lot of people probably read that and thought to themselves, oh, what if I block IL-17? Has there been anything studied? Is that an area of interest in terms of thinking about newer agents that we might be using for other inflammatory conditions and applying that to GVH? Yeah, this question is super interesting for two reasons. And so I'll take them separately. First is just kind of like the pathophysiology of GVHG, which has been shown to have TH17 cells and IL-17 elevation. And have we thought about kind of IL-17 inhibitors like Cosentix or TALTS? And the question is those agents, I think that's like a great idea. Those agents haven't been studied. And I think the future should incorporate potentially an IL-17 inhibitor for chronic GVHD. I will say there is a, a clinical trial going on for Stolara in sclerotic skin chronic GVHD but not for the IL-17 inhibitors. And so I think that that, even though the JAK inhibitors do kind of suppress IL-17 a little bit, it's thought to be one of the many mechanisms that they have in their efficacy towards chronic GVHD. We haven't tried more targeted therapy. I also want to take your question in a different direction, especially talking to you, Dr. Chen, because people have said, oh, well, chronic GVHD just has every morphology. Should we use therapies that treat that morphology instead of treatments that treat chronic GVHD? So if you have a GVHD patient with a psoriasis-like rash, should we be using psoriasis medications? If you have a patient with eczema-like GVHD, should we be using dupilumab? 
And that's how we approach a lot of the skin reactions to our immune checkpoint inhibitors. But at least as it stands in the landscape right now, it's thought that the underlying pathophysiologic mechanism is still chronic GVHD, as opposed to these mechanisms that cause various auto-inflammatory or autoimmune conditions, in contrast to immune check inhibition, which is just releasing the immune system. And so for that reason, our treatment paradigm is still to treat the chronic GVHD with chronic GVHD therapies, as opposed to trying a more morphology-based approach. That being said, there was just a case report in the BJD using like, you know, dupilumab for eczema-like GVHD. So to be determined, you know, what we see in the future, but that's the current approach. Amazing. I'm already getting all these thoughts in my head. I will be reaching out later if we can talk about partnering (laughs) later. Um, But I think that's really helpful to think about how this is different than how we think about checkpoint toxicity, which obviously is my area of interest. So fascinating. Just thinking about when a patient comes to see you for possible GVHD, I'm just curious, like, how do you approach that patient, though? What do you do for workup? Are you biopsying everyone? It sounds like you don't have to biopsy everyone because of the diagnostic criteria that have been published. And obviously, a lot of this is done in concert with the oncology team. So what are they doing? What are they prescribing? What are you doing? In general, what can we as dermatologists be doing to help our patients before we send them to a tertiary care center or even to manage them ourselves if we're in private practice or group practice or even in academic practice at a smaller center? So let's talk about diagnosis. So in the right host with diagnostic clinical features that I went over, I do not biopsy. So what does that mean? If a patient has deep sclerosis or fasciitis on clinical examination and they're the, you know, they're a transplant recipient, I call it chronic GVHD. I don't biopsy. If they have typical lichen planus-like lesions or active poikiloderma, I don't biopsy. Where will I biopsy? An eczema-like rash, a psoriasis-like rash, definitely a you know, morbilliform eruption. These are not diagnostic. They could have a differential. And what I'm looking for on biopsy is those interface changes or some clues that this is chronic GVHD and not just the idiopathic form of that skin condition. So that's diagnosis, super important. And then right there in the same visit, I grade their severity. And this is when you're going to determine in your mind whether you can just do skin treatment, skin-directed therapy is what we call it, or whether we need systemic therapy. So the first kind of branch point is, is it all non-sclerotic disease? Those are all our rashes, like implantis-like, eczema, psoriasis-like, or is this sclerotic disease? If you have deep sclerosis or fasciitis, they need systemic therapy, okay? So you don't even have to worry about what topical steroid or topical calcineurin inhibitor you're going to prescribe. If you have non-sclerotic disease, you can usually start with skin-directed therapy. The caveat being if someone has like full body surface area involvement, typically it's too much to just do topicals alone. And then in the kind of gray area is your superficially sclerotic disease, like lichen sclerosis or morphia. And that really, you have to take into account a lot of features, like where is it on the body? Is it crossing joints? But also how bad is it for the patient to be on immunosuppression? Maybe they have a lot of complications. They can't tolerate steroids. And it's much more of a kind of like talk with oncology, get to know the patient and make the decision. But for the two ends of the spectrum, it's pretty clear. So then what do I do if it's skin-directed therapy? 
So we're treating non-sclerotic disease. First line therapy is with topical steroids, pretty much how we would treat it for any other inflammatory chronic skin condition. So lower potency on the face, the groin and axilla and mid or high potency on the body. I'll often do soak and smears for about a month if I have a high body surface area thinking less concerned about topical application of corticosteroids for a month in this patient as if you're saving them systemic corticosteroid administration. And then we typically work in topical calcineurin inhibitors as our steroid sparing topicals, which really work beautifully. And I think there's some correlation with the fact that we use tacrolimus as GVHD prophylaxis and the, its mechanism of action. I find people really respond almost sometimes better than topical steroids to topical calcineurin inhibitors. So that's kind of our go-to. If someone is recalcitrant to that, but it's still just non-sclerotic disease, I'll sometimes try narrowband UVB phototherapy or PUVA typically works better or for recalcitrant hand and foot disease. Great. When does oncology kick in? Is it when you start to use systemics? Do you reach out for their help or are they kind of next to you kind of helping along the way or vice versa? Yep. So the first thing... It, is that you always want to let them know when you've made the diagnosis. And the reason is because they are going to ensure that every organ is screened for. Now, I run a GVHD clinic, so I know how to screen for all of those organs, but you don't have to. And by telling oncology that you're a transplant, that you've made the skin chronic GVHD diagnosis, they're going to make sure that their eyes are screened, their lungs are screened, they have some nonspecific GI symptoms that they get a colonoscopy. So you really want to tell them right up front, even if you're just going to do skin-directed therapy. Then I let them know, okay, you know what? We can just do skin-directed therapy, and I just manage that. They don't really get involved. And if I think they need systemic therapy for their skin, I often recommend what I think they need. So I think they need a steroid taper. You know what? They're so severe. I think they need a steroid taper and a steroid sparing agent right now. And typically I can manage prednisone. And typically when it gets to those secondary agents, they'll prescribe and manage them through their pharmacy. And that's kind of the breakdown of our responsibilities. Amazing. Emily, I want to thank you for spending so much time with us talking through your JAD-CME and talking through your practice of graft-versus-host disease. I think I will just acknowledge this is an incredibly complicated topic, and I would also applaud all of our listeners for tuning in and sticking with us because this is not something that we see on a regular basis, but it is something that for those of us who do see it, realize how complex it can be. And as you mentioned, like anyone can see GVHD walk through their doors as long as they're the right substrate, the right host, the right patient. Before we officially break anything else you're particularly excited about, any parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share for our Dialogues listeners? The more I've taken care of these patients and worked in this space, I think there's such a need for dermatologists here. And the skin is just one component of this really complicated disease that transplant doctors take care of. And the more dermatologic expertise they can have, the better these patients do. So for anybody interested, I would encourage you to pursue that interest. And it's just a really exciting field and lovely, amazing patients to take care of. So amazing. Emily, Dr. Bomrin, thank you again for joining us. And to all of our listeners, I hope this has been instructive and helpful. And hopefully we will all see you back tuning in to another Dialogues in Dermatology in the future. Take care. When you join Mayo Clinic's Dermatology Department, you're joining a team that's transforming dermatologic care for the better. Here, you're doing the work that not only makes our patients' lives better, you're doing the work that changes your life visit jobs.mayoclinic.com.
org slash dermatology to learn more. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.